Here's the thing though. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of our podcast, Here's the Thing Though. My name is Saliha, and I'm your host for today. I'm here with my producer slash editor, Mitch Price. Hello. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Darug and Kurungai people, who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people, past, present and future, and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and sovereignty was never ceded. So Mitch, how's it going? How's your week been? Um, it's been pretty good. Uh, I feel like probably the most interesting thing is that you have got me on to Jane the Virgin. <laughs> yeah. Which is something I never thought I'd really uh, get into. But it's actually pretty fun. Well, how, how far are we? We've been watching it together. I think we're like 10 episodes in now. It's pretty good. I At first, I was just like, I don't know. I was interested in the characters, but now it's just so dramatic. I can't, can't get enough. Yeah, I feel like it's got to the point where like you're like... Just, you started that, like, just one more episode, please. I'm like, okay, okay. And now I'm like, I next need, episode. I, I need to know what happens. I Quick. need to know what happens. Yes, he's been sucked into the telenovela drama, which is why we love it. So we're now a bit, I'm in like season four, but I'm also like at the same time rewatching it with Mitch because <laughs> it's so good. It's so enjoyable, even on a rewatch. It is, it's good. Anyways, how are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm okay. My week's been fairly normal. I'm having a bit of writer's block, though, which is kind of annoying. I have a column that I'm supposed to be writing that's due tomorrow, Wednesday, which is when you guys will be listening to this uh, for Shameless. I've been writing a couple of monthly columns for them. I'm just like, I've like written like half of it, but I'm just like, this doesn't flow. I don't like it. It's just writer's block. I know like randomly at 3am I'll be inspired and it'll be really good once I write it. But at the moment it's, it's a bit rough. It's always the way, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I'm also going to start working a new job soon. You guys know I left uh, five wire. I mean, I kind of just took a leave and then never went back. But going to start being on the ed- editorial board for a new publication that someone I know is starting up. I will let you guys know when that's actually launched. It'll be really exciting. Um, and yeah, uh, it was uh, one of our friends or a couple of our friends' birthday event the other day, and it was really nice because it's the first time that we like hung out with that group of friends in ages, and I missed them. And it's so nice seeing your friends when you haven't seen them in a while. Like you don't realize how you just haven't seen anybody in a while until you see them. And then you're just like, wow, how have I been living the last three months without you guys? Before we introduce today's topic, we have some follow-up. This was actually not strictly speaking for the pod, but I thought it would be really good to bring it up. Uh, For last week's episode, we talked about the struggles of being, you know, a child of immigrants and like what that entails and especially around the ideas of success and like relationships with culture and, you know, kind of being in between places and having to navigate a whole new world. Um, and we had a listener ask in our Facebook group, what do you now define as success or having lived a successful life? Is it being a good person, making an impact, having made an effort? When I think about what I owe my parents, like you said, they immigrated to give us a better chance of a better life. And that meant financially with a higher standard of living. If I now define success as unrelated to those factors, then it feels like I'm spitting in their face and saying, well, actually, all that suffering you went through was for nothing because I define success as being a good person and I could have done that anyway, you know? Sorry, I'm shorting the question a little bit because it's pretty long. So I'll end it with, I don't ever think I would be okay with myself if I made them feel like their sacrifice wasn't worth it. Thank you, Jess, who was the one who sent in this question because I thought about it for quite a while, actually, and I kind of typed up a response and then deleted it and then typed up a response and then deleted it because I'm not quite sure what I now define as success or having lived a successful life. I definitely agree that being a good person and making an impact a part of it and that, but I don't know about the effort part because I don't really give a shit about working hard. I think working hard is something we do that is necessary to survive, but I don't think it actually says a lot about people's character. You know, like, I mean, ideally none of us would have to work that hard to live because we are lucky to be living on a planet that is so fruitful and literally exists to cater to our human need. But we don't because of capitalism. We have to work so hard every day to survive. And I don't think I value that. I think I just see it as something that we have to do that's necessary. So when I think of success, I think given my existence in this world, in this world that like values work, for me, it's probably like, yes, being a good person, but also like financial stability, (laughs) But everybody's vision of success is different, right? For me, as like somebody who grew up without financial stability in like a low-income Western suburb of Sydney, 
um, financial stability is what I think success is because I know that if I'm financially stable and that's like, that's the biggest source of anxiety for me. That is what stresses me out the most is financial instability. So I think if I was financially stable, regardless of what career I was working, whether I was in retail or a doctor, if I was financially stable, I would feel successful in that regard. I think all the rest of it is maybe not like all the rest of the pressures that come with finding a career, maybe not my insecurities, but society's insecurities. Because if I'm financially stable, I'm financially stable. I don't give a shit what career it's from. Uh, just addressing the part of your question that talked about like making your life worth your parents' sacrifices. I was pretty like, I've never had to think too deeply about that because I've never, I don't think my family would ever express to me that what I was doing was not worth their sacrifices. I think seeing me as a happy and healthy person for the most part is enough. So that that depends on your parents, to be honest, because like I I, I would probably never tell my parent, or we never have a discussion in which like me not being worth this, what their sacrifices would ever come up. It's just not something anybody would ever say to me in my family, ever. Maybe they're a bit disappointed that I'm not as culturally inclined as I should be or not as religious as they want me to be. But in terms of just like living, I feel like I'm doing all right. So yeah, I hope that answers your question. Anyway, that's all for the follow-up. So let's get into today's topic. It's December. And so this cursed, cursed, cursed year of 2020 is nearly over. I know it's been an emotionally draining roller coaster of bad news this year. So instead, let's focus on some of the good news. I compiled a bunch of the feel good stories and headlines I've seen this year for you guys. So we can take a little break from all the politics, just kind of ruminate on all the nice, wholesome news of the year. Yeah, let's get into it. The first story I have for you guys is about an 89-year-old man called Derlin who works as a pizza delivery guy. He works like five to six shifts a week to make ends meet. Uh, And then footage of him being sweet to one of the homes he delivers to went viral. And the couple who he delivered to ended up raising thousands of dollars for him from TikTok, which I think is pretty cute. That's really wholesome. Yeah, and then they recorded recorded giving it to him. They gave him a tip of $12,000 in this ginormous check because that is how much people donated to him. My second story for you guys today is about a six-year-old boy with diabetes who sold pumpkins to raise money for his service dog, which he desperately needed. Oh, how sweet, right? I love dogs. My third story is about an 11-year-old boy called Carter Carey who raised a lot of sum- a lot of money in the summer with his lemonade stand to buy over 22,000 diapers to give away to single mums in need. Um, one of my favorite stories here is about California inmate firefighters, so uh, California prisoners, like prisoners from prisons, who would also be firefighters. They can now have their records cleared and become professional firefighters after they leave prison. Uh. I mean, yeah, like that, that's nice, I guess. But I feel like I'm I'm noticing a trend here. Uh, okay, well, d- just just go on, just go on. I've got another story for you about how Bloomberg raised sixteen. By the way, not donated himself, raised sixteen million dollars to help Florida ex felons register to vote. Wow, I mean. Maybe they should have been able to vote. Okay, anyway, that's really nice. That's wholesome. Don't ruin it. Don't ruin it. Hit me with another one. I have another story where an engineer invented shelters for homeless people that retain heat during the winter. They're tiny little little one-person tent-sized little homes for homeless people. A little cozy. That's pretty nice of him, right? Yeah. And my last story for today, which I think is the sweetest, a a CBS news story. A two-year-old's family couldn't afford his $20,000 electric wheelchair and their insurance, their medical insurance didn't cover it either. So a high school robotics team built him one for free and they put a little heart emoji in their tweet. Wow. Wholesome. It was nice to listen to some completely apolitical, wholesome news stories. I bet you're all wondering what we're playing at. Clearly, it's not wholesome that a diabetic kid had to sell pumpkins to a photo service dog. Or that an 89-year-old delivery man was ni- was nice. Or that a two-year-old had to rely on high schoolers to have a wheelchair. But that's exactly the thing, isn't it? I've noticed this trend of romanticizing really kind of sad, heart-wrenching situations of poverty 
each of these feel-good stories about the innate goodness of humans. It seems like what this does is just distract us from the underlying issues of a capitalist society that allows such poverty and struggle in the first place. It's this packaging of capitalist dystopia into wholesome stories of the underdog's kindness and humanity being worth more than anything money could buy. And we know, actually, money can and does buy happiness when you're broke. (laughs) And when you're struggling to make it through your days, money can be the difference between a good and a bad day. So... Let's go through all those stories again, but this time, let's be more critical of exactly what is happening and how it's being framed. So let's talk about Derlin, the 89-year-old pizza man. Pizza delivery man, sorry. Yes, it's wholesome that people all over the internet raise money for an 89-year-old man who had to work five to six shifts a week. That is so many. I work like three shifts. Five to six shifts a week to make ends meet. But the story itself isn't wholesome because there's no discussion around the fact that an 89-year-old man still has to work to make a living in the first place. There's no discussion on how elderly citizens are abandoned by the state to fend for themselves despite a lifetime of hard work. Like, the man's 90. He's probably been working for, like, over 70 years. It's really quite disturbing how that just kind of isn't really acknowledged and that we just kind of focus on the lovely thing that people did for him. And, yes, it was lovely that they did that, but they shouldn't have had to. They shouldn't have had to. He shouldn't have had to work five to six shifts a week as, like, at, a, at his age. It's just sad. Going on from that, the six-year-old who sells pumpkins to afford a service dog. Look, what this headline should have really read is that child labor is, an, is necessary for a kid to afford resources for his health. That's not wholesome. That is a dystopic nightmare. This kid is six. Why is a six-year-old selling shit to afford a service dog? This story is inherently political because now we're going to talk about why the fuck a kid who is six has to work for a living. And then what about the 11-year-old who raised money from his lemonade stand to buy single mothers diapers for their kids? Again, the kid himself is wholesome and wonderful, but the story isn't. The story itself isn't, because the fact that society even needs to rely on charity in the form of child labour for basic necessities and hygiene products like diapers is tragic and an indictment of the system we live in. And I mean, I'm sure you guys already know what's wrong with the story about the California inmate firefighters uh, who can now have their records cleared and become professional firefighters Prison labor is not wholesome. People shouldn't have to like pay for their crimes, quote unquote, because you know what? A lot of people are not even in prison for violent crimes by like risking their lives to save us from fires. The fact that these inmates were even forced to fight fires in the first place and then denied actual jobs as firefighters afterwards is absurd. Like the reason that we're celebrating the fact that they were allowed to become firefighters is because initially they weren't. Initially, Californian prison inmates were sent to fight the wildfires over there as prisoners as part of their prison duty without pay, without compensation. And then when they left prison, they weren't allowed to become firefighters despite the fact that they actually had qualifications and experience in that role. There is so many things wrong with this. First of all, I mean, prison labor is not wholesome. Prison labor is legalized slavery. Uh, This is the exploitation of bodies and predominantly black bodies. It's not a cute and progressive step forward to allow them to then become firefighters because it's just the exploitation of vulnerable people who were forced to put their lives on the line and then they weren't compensated for it and then they were denied a career based on it and then they were given a career based on it, but they shouldn't have had to. And then talking about prisoners, if we're going to keep talking about that, there's a story of Bloomberg who who raised $16 million to help Florida ex-felons register to vote. The fact that, like, it is so hard to vote in America is the issue here. The fact that it is even harder for ex-felons to vote in America, the fact that felons often can't vote in America is the issue here. It is not wholesome that somebody raised money to help them vote, especially something like fucking Bloomberg. Bloomberg isn't wholesome. The situation isn't wholesome because people should be able to vote and voting should be accessible. These, these stories just keep focusing on the wrong thing and selling these horrible stories back to us as like this wholesome progressive thing. And I know you guys are probably thinking, what was wrong with the story about the engineer who invented all these shelters for the homeless? You know, those shelters that retained heat during winter. Like what's wrong with that? That is totally wholesome. It's definitely wholesome of the guy. I No disrespect to the guy who came up with it, right? We should be helping homeless people. We should be trying to come up with ways to house homeless people. That's great. But we should just be housing homeless people as a society. The fact that so much creativity and innovation is required to come up with a solution for this issue is the issue. Because it's really that it's really simple. We have a surplus of empty houses that aren't being used. And the only reason they aren't being used is because 
we care more about property than we do about people. Yeah, it's a fact that we have more empty houses in Australia than homeless people, which is crazy. Exactly. And the shelters that this guy designed are like tiny. You know, they're the length of a sleeping bag and about a meter or so tall. So you could sit in it and you could lie down in it, but you couldn't stand or even roll over. It is fucking wild that we dehumanize and degrade homeless people so much that we can't even give them basic shelter. And that when we do come up with shelter for homeless people, it's like this tiny little capsule designed to look like kennels for homeless people. That we can't even give them the dignity of a home, which we definitely are not having a shortage of. And then when we celebrate like somebody for having an innovative idea of how to house them, which is great that we do that, but like we celebrate it and then we don't implement it. Do you think this guy's innovation was implemented anywhere? No, it was a it was a great idea that he had, but there have been so there are so many viable solutions to homelessness, and none of them are implemented because the society that we live in doesn't actually give a shit about housing homeless people. Then, of course, the lovely lovely story apparently, uh, the CBS story of the two year old whose family couldn't afford his wheelchair, so and their insurance didn't cover it, so high school robotics team built him one for free. What is wrong? Oh my god, this headline bothers me so much because. This family actually had medical insurance. They actually had medical insurance for their two-year-old and they still didn't have access to the resources and the equipment that he needed. And a high school robotics team had to build him one. They had to come together, these children, again, child labor, to build a two-year-old something that he should have had access to because he had medical insurance. There's a response to that story by the public citizen on Twitter that says, This country is so accustomed to its monstrous healthcare system that when a two-year-old with a genetic condition needs to rely on a high school robotics team to meet his basic healthcare needs, the media thinks it's a feel-good story, not a dystopian nightmare. Exactly. That's exactly what we're saying. The common factor in all these tweets is this deflection of society's failures and a romanticization of survival. The media has taken all these sad, sad stories of people struggling and having to do the absolute most to try and get by and survive and turned it into some lovely story of human kindness. And sure, kindness is a factor here, but people wouldn't have to do all these super selfless kind things anyway if capitalism didn't create a world where human kindness is the only way some people have access to basic necessities. There's a really great tweet uh, that I think does a great job at explaining the kind of cognitive dissonance or, or ignorance that comes with headlines and stories like this. It reads... Every heartwarming human interest story in America is like, he raised $20,000 to keep 200 orphans from being crushed in the orphan crushing machine. And then it just never asks why an orphan crushing machine exists or why you'd have to pay to prevent it from being used. Exactly. I feel like that encapsulates what this episode is about. These stories aren't wholesome. They are just capitalist dystopia. I know it sounds super cynical to refuse to class these stories as just wholesome human interest stories, but we have to be cynical of stories like these. Because otherwise, we let the world get away with absurd and dangerous narratives that normalize and romanticize poverty. And we can't let that happen, or we start to lose this, our interest in actually changing the system and society that enables such shitty circumstances and the need for drastic measures like the examples mentioned above in the first place. Because we read those stories and we're like, see... People are all right. You know what? The kids are all right. Look at this face after doing it. Everything's actually going to be okay because people are really great. And I believe that people are really great, but it shouldn't be a wholesome story that high schoolers all saved their pocket money so their teacher could afford life-saving cancer treatment. It's a sad and dystopic example of the fact that some places don't give a shit about human lives to the point where literal classrooms worth of children need to perform labor in the hopes of maybe helping one person not die of preventable causes like having access to medical assistance. Yeah, like maybe these articles don't mean to be so reductive and dangerous in the way they romanticize poverty. But if we were to give the benefit of the doubt, we could say that the people writing these stories are just naive or they're just failing to recognize the specific intersection of political issues that come to, I guess, underpin these stories. Maybe it's just some bourgeois writer that couldn't see the politics even if they tried. And that could be true in some cases, but we need to recognize that there actually is capitalistic incentives to be framing these stories in this very specific way. So the most obvious motive, I guess, would be framing a story like this makes it seem apolitical. As we all know, there's no such thing as anything being apolitical. Everything has some political aspect or is built upon 
political context. But clearly, these types of publications will do everything in its power to make its inspirational story suitable for every demographic. Because the least partisan, the least political you can make it, the wider audience it'll be able to reach. And that's important because advertisers prefer not to sponsor content that is divisive. So not only will a feel-good, apolitical, quote-unquote, story get more clicks, it's more likely to draw large corporate sponsors. And I think, like... This discussion presents a really great moment to talk about something that I've wanted to talk about for a while and something that I think is really valuable when coming to approach the political economy of the media. So we're going to to get into just a a brief moment of theory and delve into what that means. So first, what do I mean when I say political economy? Uh, Pretty much that's just a fancy term to mean that we're going to be analyzing a certain topic or industry through the lens of how it exists within capitalism how institutions, governments, customs, and capitalist structures influence economic outcomes. Yeah, because speaking about things being apolitical, I mean, we were making fun of that earlier in the podcast episode today. But yeah, like these stories aren't apolitical because in their in their choice to frame situations to be wholesome rather than dystopic or in their active omitting of why these situations are problematic, they are political because they uphold the status quo or they uphold capitalism or they uphold the societal mindset that this is normal or not normal or okay or not okay or whatever, there is no such thing as apolitical media. And these wholesome stories are still political. And I know people are always like, why are you ruining good news for us? And it's like, well, I'm not. I'm just telling you what it is. And if that upsets you, I'm sorry. But it is it is the truth because nothing is apolitical. Everything you choose to celebrate or not celebrate, everything you choose to say or not say is political. Silence is also political. Exactly. And I think what we're about to get into is a really valuable way of looking at why these types of stories are so prevalent and what economic conditions make them so valuable to publications. So you, you guys may have heard of Noam Chomsky and maybe lesser so uh, Eric Herman. Noam Chomsky is one of the most influential leftist writers of the past hundred years. Uh, and he's really sort of developed a lot of the the new left movement. And him and writer Eric Herman, a few, uh, maybe 30 years ago, came up with this thing called the propaganda model. Uh, It was discussed in their book called Manufacturing Consent. And pretty much in it, they propose five main filters that sort of come to decide what type of content we see uh, in mainstream news outlets. And they suggest that there's five main capitalistic, institutional, and structural uh, systems that come to decide what those are. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just jump in to say, like, these wholesome stories, I think it'll be worth discussing in this context as somebody who's written a bunch of these stories. Uh, like, I mean, I worked in, like, you know, like, youth journalism, and, like, I, re- I had to write a lot of clickbaity shit for my job. It's normal. We have to do it for clicks. And it'll be really interesting, I think, us talking about it together. Mitch is somebody who knows a lot about this theory stuff that I don't really know, but I've actually just done a lot of it in practice, and I have, like, the industry, I guess, experience to kind of get into this and talk about like these wholesome stories and what they mean in this capitalist dystopia. So I'm actually like, this is, the next bit is unscripted, by the way. Mitch and I are just going for it today and I reckon it'll be good. Okay. So yeah, we'll just go through each one and then maybe reflect on uh, how it impacts why these stories will have the prevalence they do. So the first thing that Chomsky and Herman uh, elucidate is ownership. How does the ownership of the media reflect the types of... uh, of stories that are produced and the context in which they're framed in. Well, who owns the media? Murdoch. (laughs) Murdoch, Murdoch. And if not Murdoch, then other wealthy conglomerates. Yeah. Uh, Powerful white men operate the media. Powerful right-wing white men as well. Powerful right-wing white men who actively benefit off capitalist society every day and who are probably exploiting the kind of people that we are talking about in these articles that are doing desperate things that are being praised. Exactly. So, of course, powerful white men who operate the media and own the media, even if they have employed diverse writers, will encourage the type of content being produced to be, at most, apolitical and probably more so conservative, uh, because they obviously have no interest in publishing anything that will uh, disrupt the establishment or begin to sway people's minds in a way that isn't, uh, I guess, suitable for rich white men running large media companies. So I think, I mean, for the first one, I feel that's a very clear example of 
why the ownership of media companies will severely impact the type of content that gets produced. Yeah, I feel like we kind of know this one. That one is obvious. And the second one is maybe even more obvious. It's advertising, the source of advertising. Uh, As most of you know, going through your day-to-day media habits, you don't really pay for content. I mean, you go to most news sites, you just click on and you don't have to, most of you probably don't have a subscription. And how do they get funded? Well, they get funded through sponsorships or advertising. Advertisers, of course, mostly large, big corporate uh, sponsors uh, don't want to sponsor content that is partisan or will only appeal to a sort of divided audience. They Advertisers have an interest in sponsoring websites and funding websites that will either uh, reinforce the status quo, uh, further institutionalize the establishment, or at most will be uh, apolitical or seemingly apolitical, like these inspirational news stories. Yeah, these things that like aren't going to cause drama, they're not controversial, you're not going to lose clicks or lose viewers from it. And if anything, like wholesome stories like the ones we've mentioned earlier, we're desperate for them. People want to watch the, or read those things because we just got so much fucking bad news every day, especially 2020 has been like so bad. And everybody is desperate for good news. It appeals to like people of all politics. So, I mean, we can call it apolitical, but really it is a very specific kind of political that masks its politics to be, I guess, palatable to everybody. And so it makes sense why advertisers like things like that because first of all, we know it gets clicks. We know it's going to be successful. And second of all, we know that the majority of people will read this and it doesn't really matter what their politics are. You're reaching a very wide ranging, very diverse audience without even trying. Exactly. Like, do you think Domino's wants to sponsor a a new site that talks about how they're exploiting their pizza delivery drivers? Like that 90-year-old man we discussed earlier? No, of course... It's in, I mean, media companies and advertisers' best interest to frame those stories in the, in the least disruptive and least controversial way possible. And then the next filter that Chomsky and Herman uh, suggest exists is the sourcing filter. Where do media companies get their, uh, I guess, their info from, their sources? Most companies uh, or most outlets don't have the staff available to have uh, reporters in every part of Australia or everywhere throughout the world. So they have to decide where they're going to distribute their efforts. And most of the time, that's going to be in places where they believe news is going to happen. So in America, that will be reporters always at the White House. In Australia, uh, that's in Parliament. And, And what does that end up doing? It reinforces where news exists it's a sort of symbiotic relationship between these powerful institutions and the media companies. Yeah, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you say news is going to be there, so you put reporters there and they report on the news in that particular place and that's where the news is. It's why, like, uh, for those of you who are into media and journalism will know, there's a there's a bit of politics right now in Australian journalism because of the lack of reporters covering rural or regional areas at the moment, despite the fact that that's where a lot of politics are, especially now with things like farmers and bushfires and droughts. Regional and rural journalism is really, really important right now because that's where shit is happening. But that's not where shit is happening, according to the media world, because that's not where we're putting journalists. It's been a real uh, takedown of journalism in those areas, and it's really, really, really lacking. And it's becoming this problem, especially with the defunding of the ABC, who did a lot of really good, rigorous journalism during last summer's bushfires. Um, now they're kind of losing that momentum because they're just they're cutting funds. The government's cutting funds, obviously, for obvious reasons, which, I mean, it's kind of relevant anyway, the government cutting funds to the ABC because they're reporting on things like climate change and stuff, which is making the government look bad. Um, so because of that, news is actually not happening in rural areas despite the fact that it is. But it isn't because we're not putting journalists there, so who's reporting on it? And if people are not reporting on it, is it news? Exactly. I mean, that's a really great example. And also... Most of the news you read are just press releases that like these outlets have received and they're just turning them into an article. Can confirm as somebody who gets <laughs> like 5,000 emails a day in my still active work email, a lot of the articles that people write in general come from press releases, especially when you're like a staff writer who has to write like multiple articles a day as part of your job and you've got like maybe an hour or two to do each article. Like you get the press release you reword it in your words, but you use all their information and then you upload it. And unless you have a strong opinion on what you're writing, not a lot of it is actually getting like properly investigated. And that's what we're talking about with this symbiotic relationship. Um, the media companies, whatever you read, they need to put content out. And 
the big institutions that get reported on uh, need good press. So there's this sort of relationship where these uh, companies, these large corporate companies will give uh, outlets, uh, pretty much give them news on a silver platter and then they will repackage it and will replicate whatever perspective uh, the company provides to them. And this is mostly true for like a lot of news publishers or like more pop news kind of stuff, pop culture news, human interest stories and stuff. Probably not the same thing for things like ABC, obviously. But if we're going to talk about things like Channel 7, which by the way, I mean, Channel 7 has always been trash, but it has really gone to the dogs these last few months. I've noticed like they've been putting articles about Reddit stories. Like the headline will be like, man finds out wife cheated and blah, blah, blah. And then you go in the article and it's literally a link to a Reddit story. Like that is their journalism right now. It's actually fucked. But they're just, everything is about content. Everything's about creating content. And when you don't have content, that's a very easy way to make content is all these, and all these companies are aware that all these media publications are desperate for content because they need advertising, they need clicks and they make money per clicks on websites. So the more articles you have with the more clickbaity titles, the more likely you are going to click, the more money you're going to make. And so, like Mitch said, it's just like really convenient relationship because they're like, oh, you need content. Here is a bunch of press releases and all these things that I know you don't care about, but we've pretty much written the article for you. It'll take you such a small amount of time to get up. It'll be worth it for you to get clicks and zero effort. And if you also, if you dissent from those perspectives, if you start writing controversial stories, you may not be given access to those press releases in the future. You will be excluded, making your job harder. So, of course, there is... a incredible incentive to just make whatever you can as digestible and non or bipartisan as possible again can confirm (laughs) when i like i mean i definitely wrote a lot of controversial articles at my job but i was only able to get away with that because we were such a small business that you know we there wasn't enough at stake for it to really be a problem but had i worked at like a larger publication there's no way i would have been able to write all i mean i was writing acap articles and stuff this is and this is in Australia where like our journalism is so right wing. There is such a complete lack of left wing journalism, and we have really really shitty journalism laws that totally gag you from actually being able to say anything worth saying. Um, in any other publication, there is no way I could have said the stuff that I was saying. That's very true. Then the fourth one uh, that they suggest exists. The fourth filter is flak. F L A K. That's pretty much uh, just the sort of the efforts to suppress and uh, discourage sort of any controversial uh, sentiment being uh, published. A really good example of this, and all of you guys I know are familiar with this, is like wanting to write a left-wing piece or wanting to write a piece about racism, but not doing it because you know you're going to get so much hate. Like this is how we silence women of colour, for example. In Australian media, I think of like Yasmin Abdul-Majid and how she was like, she had to leave the country because she was supporting like people on Nauru and Manus and Anzac Day. You know, like, Flack is, like, watching her get absolutely fucking, like, brutalised in the media and then thinking, you know what, maybe I'm going to keep my opinions to myself instead of writing an article about it because look what happened to her and I don't want that to happen to me. Yeah, so this comes from both the readership. It's like how you, if you publish something, let's say, like, a very far left-wing article, you may get hordes of, of right-wing... Uh, Not may, will, will, can confirm. You will get hordes of uh, right-wing commentators or just... Uh, a regular folk uh, sending you death threats, bro. Trying I had, like, to deplatform you. I had like my email hacked once by some right wing freak over like an article I wrote about racism. It was crazy, and I'm like, I only got like a few hundred views on that article, and even then, I was getting hate mail. I was getting hacked. Like that shit's real. The flack is real. And then it also is a more institutional flack. It's if you're a small left-wing publisher and you uh, you post something, uh, other large companies will turn the existence of your story into a new story of itself to point and be like, this is what's wrong uh, with uh, with this author or this is a terrible perspective. I mean, you experienced the, uh, the exact same thing with your Paragon Hotel incident where you uploaded your story and then other more right-wing conservative sites picked up that story to then you know shit on you pretty much yeah people just, and it's like it's not overt because a lot of media companies can't be super overt but it's the wording they'll use where they'll say things like claim even though there's video footage or like they'll say nightclub instead of restaurant things like little things like that where they like are actively shitting on me and mocking me in an article but they do it subtly and then 
because they know they don't have to say anything because they all they have to do is slightly mock me and their 7 million followers will do the rest of the work. And the fifth and final filter that Chomsky talks about is one that sort of shifts with time. By the time it was written, it was anti-communism or more broadly, the other. It's this sort of new stories in order to be profitable, in order to engage with them, have to in some way engage with fear, have to scare its audience in some way to make sure that you're never completely safe. There's always a threat looming around the corner. So 30 years ago when this was written, uh, it was anti-communism. It was the fear in you know conservative Western countries, uh, the fear of communism spreading and, and changing their way of lives. Now it may be you know Islam, that is always the the scapegoat or the fear Watch out, the tool. Muslims are coming. Exactly, yeah. So it always changes, but it's just something- There's always a scapegoat. I mean, currently it's like also Chinese people because of coronavirus. Everyone's like, watch out for the Asians. Like it's just racist. So I guess looking at all this and seeing it, it uh, how it impacts inspirational news content. Inspirational news content, the feel-good stories that we discussed, they're just designed to be the most palatable- watered down version of any event that could occur the least controversial uh, and the most profitable take it's not necessarily that they're trying they have a, like a right-wing agenda they're trying to suppress uh woke left-wing politics from all uh all of the news stories it produce there is very legitimate capitalistic economic circumstances that would make a writer want to publish a story that is as thoughtless and unconsidered as possible right yeah and like i mean i've written those articles as somebody who prides myself on being maybe a little bit more political than that but i've done it because sometimes you have to and also i was maybe a little bit less politically inclined at the time but i just think the reason that we're talking about the economic models that create these stories is because we want you to be critical of them and we don't want you to look at that story and be like wow what a conservative loser you know who wrote this story because that's not the case necessarily but it's more about Think about like the economic conditions that require a wholesome article like this or require this to be a wholesome angle. Like capitalism doesn't want you sitting there criticizing capitalism. Capitalism is not going to run a story about a two-year-old needing to rely on high schoolers for a wheelchair and criticize itself. It knows that the story is going to break out. It knows that people are going to talk about it. It knows that it's newsworthy. These media companies know that, that it's newsworthy, but they need to turn it around and make it palatable so that they can make money off it. They don't want it to be divisive. The ruling class doesn't want it to be divisive. That's the last thing they want. So instead, they package it as feel good. And now you feel good. And you don't, instead of feeling angry and frustrated, which is how you should feel, you're like, no, look, human kindness prevails. You know, that's, and that's what it distracts you. And it gives you more faith in society. And maybe we do have faith in society, but it's, it distracts you from criticizing society as well. And... I mean, these five filters is what Chomsky and Herman describe as the propaganda model. And they also describe a filtering process that starts since birth. It starts in the education system, then uh, university, and then early in your career, and then following you later. It's a filtering system that makes sure that you don't question the establishment. Uh, and that's how we get these big mainstream outlets producing these types of articles. For example, if you're a sort of a passionate young political writer and you are given you find this on twitter this new story of i'll just say again the the 90 year old uh pizza uh delivery man uh, he was 89 but i guess 89, same thing <laughs> same thing maybe it was his birthday in the past week <laughs> anyways uh if you took that story and then wanted to turn it like we did into the very legitimate political take you're probably not going to be asked to write another story you're probably not going to be asked back. And if you do, you're going to be pushed aside to less mainstream outlets. You will have an audience, but, but it'll, it'll, be, be, a niche it'll one. be far smaller. So what ultimately happens is as you get established in your career, uh, further and further, the people that get really high up, they're not self-censoring. They're not thinking about how to manipulate the system. They really believe what they're, they're saying, but they've been filtered so the people who do have access to large audiences will just replicate this opinion. Yeah, well, it's more about the fact that like these companies will reward those with the quote-unquote correct opinions. So these companies will reward those with the more conservative opinions because that's who they want their image to be. You know, like somebody like me, if I joined Channel 9, for example, no way my fucking articles would get published. I would pitch like 
my anti-racism whatever articles, my criticisms of rich white men, my criticisms of capitalism, which is against what Channel 9 or whatever other big media companies stand for, they'd be like, mm, maybe next time, you know, I just don't think this is right. Or they would absolutely fucking kneecap my article, right? The point is I wouldn't be able to get my point across. And I would be seen as too radical, um, especially being a brown woman as well. It would make it 10 times worse. If Mitch pitched the same article, maybe, just maybe, <laughs> it would get- I could slide in he there. He could slide in yeah. there, maybe, but I wouldn't. No way. Right, because the politics that we are trying to sell here are just not what this company needs to succeed, and they know it is going to be divisive, and they know it's not going to be profitable for them, so they're not going to share it. So, somebody who does get successful, it's not because they learn to cheat the system; it's because they are the system. They are what's good for these companies. They have the quote unquote right politics, aka the conservative ones that this company needs, and that's why they're successful. So when you look at successful journalists in Australia right now and how predominantly they are like white conservative ones, it's not because that is the best journalism, it's because that is the most acceptable and palatable journalism to these media companies. There's a really great YouTube video that I want to recommend for anybody uh, who is sort of finding this interesting. And it's with Noam Chomsky where... Uh, he was being interviewed by Andrew Marr. He's a big uh, Scottish journalist who I guess is notoriously known for asking uh, softball, uncontroversial questions to political figures when he interviews them. Uh, And he's uh, interviewing Noam Chomsky about the propaganda model and his book, Manufacturing Consent. And Andrew Marr is talking to him like, how do you believe that I am self-censoring? Like, why do you think that I don't believe the things that I'm saying? That I'm saying the things I'm saying just to appease the establishment? Uh, Like, do you think that all journalists are merely self-censoring? And Noam Chomsky uh, replies to him, it's not that you don't believe what you're saying. I believe 100% that you believe what you're saying is true. But if you believed anything different, you wouldn't be sitting there. And then Andrew Marr just looks sort of dumbfounded and stunned. But that's the thing. Andrew Marr definitely believes whatever he believes. But if he believes something different, he wouldn't be in the position of power that he's in. And that's ultimately the filtering process. And when we can look at, you know, feel good stories, it all, I mean, it, it all makes sense. Yeah. It all comes together. Especially when we talk about kind of Australian journalism, something that I just got reminded of now uh, is during the Black Lives Matter protests in America. A lot of you will remember this because it, it kind of blew up and it was trending on Twitter and stuff. An Australian white journalist was at, she was covering the Black Lives, I think she was, maybe she was Channel 9, I don't know. But she was covering Black Lives Matter uh, protests in America and she like holds the microphone to a black guy at the protest and she's all like you know what are you guys protesting for and he's, talking, he's like are you serious and he gets really frustrated at her because like are you seriously asking me what we're protesting for um you know like look at all like look at the history of black slavery in this country that's what we're protesting and then she goes oh sorry i'm australian and you know we don't really have anything like that in our country so you know forgive us for not knowing about it and then she got blasted because people were like what do you mean australia doesn't know anything about like subjugating black people look at the way we treated indigenous people in australia like look at aboriginal slavery in australia like her comments were really tone deaf and they were really stupid um and she was roasted for it and then when you research her she's actually an award-winning journalist in australia she has won like awards for her journalism and she doesn't know anything about like subjugation in australia because the truth is we don't reward that kind of behavior we don't reward those people We reward people that uphold the status quo. That's why Australian journalism is so fucking piss poor. And that's why articles like these wholesome ones are so important to journalism and why they make it so far and why they're so common and why we love them because they don't disrupt society. They make us feel good about doing nothing. They make us like feel a bit better about how shitty the world is and they distract us from real issues. And that is beneficial to the ruling class. And I know how it can seem sort of cynical to be approaching uh, these stories in this way, how it seems like we're just finding the negative in everything. And people always like to talk about how leftists and revolutionaries are always killjoys and unhappy, uh, thinking that people are evil and that nothing will ever make us happy. The cynical generation that think they know better than everyone else and will always find something to complain about. But really, the opposite is true. Leftists like us are the most optimistic people they are because we believe that everyday people have the ability, the autonomy, and the intelligence to organize and democratically control their own lives. Uh, We don't see the need for a government that obfuscates its operations and allows no meaningful ways to engage with its policy. We have an enormous amount of faith in the working class, but we have no faith in the ruling class. 
The media conglomerates that refuse to give their workers livable conditions are the same outlets that manage to reframe stories of struggle and inadequate systemic support as feel-good stories of love and hope. They make this all feel normal, like poverty is inevitable and it's up to the wholesome, selfless community to take care of others. These stories normalize the perils of capitalism, a system that isn't able to take care of the needs of most of its population. They exploit the humanity of individuals to mask the systemic failures that lead to the circumstances in the first place. So really, it's conservatives that are not optimistic. They see humans, the individuals of their community, as selfish, like society is simply a competition. Your peers will screw you over at any moment. But, you know, of course this isn't true. What these feel-good stories show us, despite their exploitative manner, is that Despite the hellscape that modern capitalism has provided, humanity manages to prevail. Yeah, exactly. While we're obviously super critical of the normalization and romanticizing of poverty and struggle, and these headlines do do that, we also see that in a twisted way, these headlines are proof that humanity is inherently good, despite how evil capitalism is. It's what our politics are based on, really, as socialists, I think. We believe in the fact that humans inherently and necessarily need each other to survive and that most people will help others when they can. There are so, so, so many stories that describe similar situations, like the ones above, of everyday people teaming up to help each other in any way possible because the truth is everyday people are kind and do care about each other and are compassionate and empathetic and generous. It's in our blood. Did you know that one of the earliest signs of human civilization is broken and then mended bones? Because it's proof of our ability to care for the vulnerable and help each other to survive as a group. And that is how we've been so successful as, you know, a species. This neoliberal myth of like survival of the fittest is actually just a capitalistic tool to turn each other against one another. It's not an accurate reflection of real life. So the survival of the fittest natural selection stuff isn't real. It's not real. The fact that in ancient times, when somebody broke their bone, another person would have to help them to mend it, is how we survived. Survival of the fittest is not what kept us alive. It's compassion that did. This constant competition that capitalism forces on us is exactly that, forced upon us. It's not natural. It's a carefully crafted ethos to keep the majority fighting amongst each other so we can't fight the capitalist class that oppresses us. It's this divide and conquer mentality. In an ideal world, the one that we want to achieve, there is enough for all. We know there is. It's just about eliminating the ruling class that holds our resources hostage. There's enough food for everybody on this planet. There is enough housing for all of us. There, are, there is no shortage of resources if we actually didn't exploit them like we do. And everyday people genuinely care about each other enough to share. That's what we see all the time in these stories. That's the takeaway that capitalism is evil and humanity prevails. We just have to band together to build that world and we have to fuck up the people that want to prevent us from building that world. Before we end this episode, we have our Patreon question of the week. Do, 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 do. Have a little theme song. Uh, on our page, we have a question box for our top two tier patrons where you can ask us absolutely anything and we'll pick one at random each week. So this week, Katie asks, it would be really interesting to know your thoughts on compulsory voting. Well, you can go first on this one. Compulsory voting. Okay, so growing up, I've definitely always been pro-compulsory voting, especially when we've seen what's happened in America and how people don't vote. I think it's pretty important important to vote. But I'm kind of torn and maybe just it's changed a little bit lately where I can see how compulsory voting in some places can be problematic. In Australia, I think it's done really well. Like not voting doesn't have a huge, I guess, issue like if you don't vote it's like a hundred dollar fine or something like you're not going to jail for not voting um and we make voting pretty accessible considering it's just at the local public school most people are pretty close to one and you can get time off to go and vote and you can vote online if you're not around or you can't vote so you know there are ways around it it's pretty easy to vote in this country which i think is really important i think it's necessary so i'm pro compulsory voting but only if it's accessible because i can totally see a situation in america where they make compulsory voting and then criminalize not voting and then actively prevent marginalized groups from voting so they can criminalize them. You know what I mean? Kind of like how in America they criminalized weed and then they were able to like jail a lot of black people because of it. Like it's just like this racialized issue. I can see that happening with compulsory voting in America, but my sense is as long as it's accessible, I'm very pro compulsory voting. I think it's necessary for like 
a somewhat democratic country, but I also understand the reservations of accessibility. I can see how criminalizing not voting can be problematic. And it sucks when there's two fucking people that both have shit politics and you don't know who to vote for. But you know what? Do a fucking donkey vote. I think compulsory voting is good. I think I think I agree. I feel like if you've listened uh, to the past, what, 13 episodes, you probably would get the gist that we don't really think that we live in a like a true democracy. Like voting between, you know, party one or party two that a are A rapist or a, or a war criminal. Who are we voting for today? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, I don't know. I mean, we don't really think that voting is the best way to operate a sort of a fair participatory democracy. At least under the representative democracy that we live in, where you have to choose between a war criminal or a rapist. You know, maybe if we had actually viable candidates, it'd be a different story. But given the circumstances, voting is better than not voting, I think. And you can always donkey vote. Like, I don't really care. Like, if you don't, if you really don't want to engage with this democracy for, like, moral reasons, or you don't want to vote for a war criminal, uh, that is also very fair. But I think your point is very true, that if voting is uh, compulsory, it will be more accessible. Because what we saw in America is people that want to vote being scared away from voting booths and sabotaged from right-wing, I guess, terrorists, really, is what what they are. Yeah, I agree. So, yeah, I think if voting is accessible, it's good. And I think also it can, like, really empower people to get into politics, at least. Like, if you know that you have to vote, it's kind of an incentive to maybe read up on who is around. And look, I will say that isn't always true because I know plenty of Australians who have to compulsory vote who don't know anything about Australian politics. But I think it is at least a stepping stone. So for the most part, we're pro-compulsory voting, but only in the circumstances where we don't criminalise those that don't vote and we make it accessible. Thanks for the question, Katie. So... I think it's a good time to talk about our sponsors for the episode, which I guess is really relevant when talking about advertising with the, <laughs> the propaganda model and how we're trying to disengage from that by doing our Patreon. And specifically, we'd like to thank the, the patrons, uh, Beck, Naya, Rachel, Lucia, Sarah, Liz, Belle, and Katie. So thank you so much. If you thought our discussion today was interesting, thought-provoking, or something you learned from, please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash sleeha. If signing up isn't really your thing, you can also donate to our PayPal link at paypal.me forward slash Saliha to support future episodes. Both the PayPal and the Patreon links are in my Instagram bio, so check them out over there at Saliha Official and give me a follow if you liked today's episode. And follow my Instagram at mitches.miscellanea for discussions around film, music and books. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions or you want to add to the discussion, you can DM me on Instagram or Mitch or email us at here's the thing though podcast at gmail.com and please include your name, pronouns and any other important info. And of course, remember to follow and subscribe. It really helps the podcast get out there. Thank you all. Bye. Bye.